Glory to Jesus Christ. Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish presents Light of the East, a program revealing how the Eastern Catholic Churches have nourished the Roman Catholic Churches and today's world in profound ways through their histories, traditions, mysteries, and spirituality. Hello, I am Father Thomas J. Loya, pastor of Annunciation of the Mother of God Byzantine Catholic Church in Homer Glen, Illinois, and this is a story of the Eastern Churches, an inspiring story of faith, courage, intrigue, mystery, spirituality, dissension, and reconciliation. But most of all, this is an expression of a great experience of faith through our unique divine liturgy. Light Join of with the me East now is as we also look supported the by of the Eastern East. Christian Publications, where you can find the prayers of the Catholic Byzantine Daily Office at ecpubs.com and easternchristianmedia.com, a broadband network for you to learn more about the Eastern Catholic Churches. That's easternchristianpublications.com. Light of the East is also funded by a grant from the Koch Foundation. Glory to Jesus Christ. Welcome to Light of the East. I am Father Thomas Loyal, your host. On this particular Sunday in many Eastern Catholic churches, in particular the Byzantine Catholic churches, of which, of course, I am a priest, a member of, we celebrate the Feast of the Seventh Ecumenical Council. Now, that happened in 787 A.D., and there were actually seven what we call main ecumenical councils in the history of the church, especially in the East. They were especially honored or recognized in the East, and this one, though, the seventh one, is set apart from the other six. We do celebrate the other six. This one is set apart from the other six. This is the seventh ecumenical council. Why is that set apart? Well, let's read a little bit about the history of this particular council in 787. And I'm going to read from a great source. I recommend it on this program many times, and I still will always recommend it. I use it myself exhaustively every single day. It's called the Prologue from Okrid. Another word for it also is the Synaxarian. In other words, it's uh, my particular source is four volumes. It's all throughout the year, four volumes. Some of them come in the two volumes, so a little thicker, but it, nonetheless, whether four or two volumes, they cover the entire liturgical year. And in each day of the year, they explain about the feast or the saint that is celebrated on that particular day. Actually, they commemorate several saints. If there's more than one saint or more, more than one event on that particular day, they will celebrate it, acknowledge it in this Synaxarian or this what's called Prologue of Okrin. And along with that, they offer a homily and a wonderful meditation. They're really, really very fine meditations. So I will read from that book, and again, it's called The Prologue from Okrid. It's actually put out by the Serbian churches. It's also, in other words, I mentioned is Synaxarian. I highly recommend that every family has a set of this prologue from Okrid. 
It's excellent family reading. Gather around the table. Gather around the supper table, presuming your family has supper together, and sometimes not that common nowadays, unfortunately. But gather the family around and read from that book every day. Believe me, it'll change your life. It'll change and enhance the life of your household. So here's what it says about today's commemoration of the Seventh Ecumenical Council. The council was held in 787 in Nicaea in the reign of the devout Empress Irene and her son Constantine, and in the time of Patriarch Tarasius. This council finally upheld the veneration of icons, expounding it from Holy Scripture, the witness of the Holy Fathers, and the examples of miracles in connection with the holy icons. Among other examples cited, the Cypriot Bishop Constantine brought forward this one. A herdsman from the city of Constantia, Driving his flock out to pasture one day, saw an icon of the Mother of God adorned with flowers by devout people. Why give so much honor to a rock, said the herdsman, obviously brought up in the iconoclasm, and he threw his iron stave at the icon, damaging the right eye of the Mother of God on the icon. As soon as he had left that spot, he stumbled over the same stave and put out his own right eye, returning blind to the city He cried out tearfully that it was a punishment from the mother of God. This council also decided that the relics of the martyrs be placed in the Antimens. We also refer to that as the Antimensian. 367 fathers took part in this council. May the Lord have mercy on us and save us by their prayers. Now, the Antimensian or Antimens is a cloth containing the relics of saints. The relics are sewed into this cloth, and the cloth is usually an iconographic drawing or painting. Oftentimes, is the icon of Christ being taken down from the cross, also called the descent from the cross. And it is placed or woven, drawn, or painted on a cloth that is used on the altar in Eastern churches. And this cloth is spread out during the Eucharistic part of liturgy, the Eucharistic prayer, or as we say in the Eastern churches, the anaphora. And the chalice and the bread that would be consecrated, which is on the discos, is placed on top of that cloth. You have to have liturgy celebrated on that cloth. For those of you who are familiar with the Latin rite of the church, this was called an altar stone. They often had a relic carved into the altar. Altars were oftentimes made of stone, so they had a piece carved out. They put the relic in, then put that piece back in. It was called an altar stone. But sometimes even the Latin Rite Church, the Western churches, used an altar cloth. But this is the way it's done in the Eastern churches. They use this altar cloth. It contains a relic sewn into it with the icon, and it's unfolded during the part of liturgy that begins the anaphora, or the Eucharistic prayer. And then the chalice and discos with the wine and bread that's going to be consecrated is brought into solemn processions called the Great Entrance and placed on top of that cloth. And there was this council that said that the altar clause must have these relics in them. Now, if you notice what I when I was reading this account from the Synaxarian, or the Prologue of Okrid, it said that this council upheld the veneration of icons, and that's why it is set apart. Now, why would icons be something you would set ecumenical council apart for? Why not join it with the rest of the six? Well, if you think about iconography and think about our faith, our faith is about the invisible God become visible. In other words, become an image through the physical, through his own creation that he himself put in place. And that creation comes to its high point in the human person, made in the image and likeness of God. 
So because God, who is invisible, pure spirit, became visible through the incarnation, the second person of the Trinity taking on human form, human nature, while still remaining God, because of that, we can portray Christ, not God the Father or Holy Spirit, but Christ in paint or stone or marble, etc., any kind of medium. It's because the second person of the Holy Trinity is the person of the Trinity that became incarnate, became an image. God the Father and the Holy Spirit did not. They remained pure spirit. They communicated with us in various ways. For example, the fiery tongues from the Holy Spirit on Pentecost that came upon the apostles. God communicated himself. God the Father communicated himself through his voice, which boomed out of heaven when Christ was baptized, for example, and a column of fire and a cloud that led the Jewish people by day and night, as we read about in the Old Testament. So there's various ways that God the Father made himself known, but not an image, especially not a human image, only the second person, the Trinity. But that event, that incarnational event, allows us, it justifies, and even encourages us to use images to make present on earth the invisible God. And those who are now gone into heaven, who are now invisible, to us at least for the time being, such as angels and saints who have passed on into eternal life, we can paint their images as well. We do not worship those images. They are vehicles of prayer, but they are sacramentals. In other words, they make present, actually make present through the nature of their art, their character, how it's painted, the substances used, the discipline used, the prayer used. It makes present what is invisible. In other words, those who are in heaven, the presence of God, the Virgin Mary, and also the mother of God, and also the angels and saints, the prophets, and so on. And that view, that incarnational, invisible, that became visible, that is the very essence of our faith. Our faith is by nature incarnational. That's the great mystery, hidden from all ages, now revealed. That means everything. That determines everything. You see, you might not think that art is all that important, but what art does, it proves, makes a statement that we can make present on earth invisible realities through physical things, paint and color and stone. Other physical things on earth make God present as well, but the icons make God present and the angels and saints in heaven present and also theology present in a very special way. But that action of making present invisible realities is the very heart of our faith. In fact, it's the very heart of life. Life is all about seeing, about seeing the invisible God made visible in the physical realities of this world, which means that determines the character, the quality, and how we therefore relate to this earth and all things physical. Matter, unlike what many false ideologies like communism say, matter, in other words, physical reality, is not divorced from spirituality. Everything on earth points to or participates in God precisely because God took on that matter. He became his own creation while remaining still God. He came to earth while remaining in heaven. He moved out from the Trinity while remaining still in the Trinity. And this great mystery is what determines everything in life. 
And that great mystery is made real in part through imagery, like icons. And that's why this, this particular commemoration, this particular council of 787 is set apart from all the rest. More about this when we return. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Every day, Father Loya posts a brief two-minute Facebook video on the Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish homepage. You'll be amazed at what you can learn just by watching. Light of the East mission is Christianity's reunion. And to tell the story of the Eastern Lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support. In order to keep Light of the East on the air, you can make a donation now by going to ByzantineCatholic.com. That's ByzantineCatholic.com. And then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. You are listening to the Choirs of Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Church under the direction of Timothy Woods in Homer Glen, Illinois. This is the music you hear on Light of the East and is sung during the Sacred Liturgy at Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish. Order online at byzantinecatholic.com. All we ask is a donation of $20 or more, which includes shipping and handling to Annunciation Parish for each Theosis CD. Send a check made out to Annunciation Parish at 14610 Wilcook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. And may God grant you I'm David Carollo, Executive Director of the World Apostle of Fatima USA, and you are listening to Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Live in a palace, but stay poor. And now, a Sheptitsky Institute Minute with Father Peter Galadza. In 1939, the great Catherine Doherty, founder of Madonna House in Canada and a protege of Dorothy Day, visited Archbishop Andrei Sheptitsky in his palace in Ukraine. Sheptitsky himself was an aristocrat, but this is how Doherty describes her visit. I was ushered into a parlor furnished with the utmost simplicity. Why was it that my mind suddenly imagined Assisi? Something in the poverty of the palace brought St. Francis to mind, for I knew that Count Sheptitsky was very wealthy. Later my guess was confirmed by an old peasant woman whom I asked why everything was so poor and shabby. She answered, oh, didn't you know? The Archbishop never spends anything on himself, his comfort or food. It all goes to his poor and his many works of mercy. To learn about degree programs in Eastern Christian Studies, visit sheptitskyinstitute.ca. That's S-H-E-P-T-Y-T-S-K-Y institute.ca. Welcome back to Light of the East. I am Father Thomas Lawyer, your host. We're talking about the miracle, the revelatory value of imagery in the church, art in the church, in particular icons. As we look at today, this Sunday, the celebration of the Seventh Ecumenical Council in 787 AD, and a, a council that freed, freed us to use, to make, to pray with icons, images, and Unlike the misunderstanding among many people, we do not, as I said before, we do not worship the images. They are instruments of prayer. In fact, 
the saints would say that the devotion given to the icon or the image is transferred to its actual person. For instance, if it's an icon of Christ, we venerate that icon, bow before it, kiss it, and that that veneration goes to the actual person by means of the icon. This shouldn't surprise us. Look at all the things that we do that have to do with imagery. The flag of our country, for example. Would you think of desecrating the flag? In fact, I believe it's still illegal, although a lot of people push the envelope on it. Would you think of desecrating the flag or disrespecting it, even though some people might, but generally we don't. Why? It's just a bunch of threads, right? It's just a bunch of cloth and colors, right? Well, it is that. It is colors and cloth and threads, but the cloth, the threads, the colors make present a whole world of invisible realities. Now, just because something is invisible doesn't mean it's not real. It's not a reality. In fact, the most real things are invisible, such as God, love, life. Transcendent things are invisible, but they're real. They're the most real things. So that flag makes real everything we believe and love about our nation, all the people that died for it, all the great people that came before us that established our constitution, everything great about our nation. So to look at that flag, to respect it, to hoist it up, to wave it, is a way of making present everything that is known, revered about our country. And it strikes at our heart, right? In fact, when we have a baseball game or a football game and they do the Star Spangled Banner at the beginning, the national anthem, what do we do? Men take off their hat, put over their heart. Or if we do the Pledge of Allegiance, we stand and look at the flag and put our hand over our heart. Are we praying? Well, not exactly, but we're certainly giving it a whole great deal of honor because of what it makes present. Well, if we can do that for a flag, a piece of cloth, if it can mean that much to us, how much more so a sacred image, a sacred icon? So physical things can commute. They can be conduits for invisible realities. Another backhanded way of proving this is, as we see today, unfortunately, we see that when people want to create chaos in a nation— They want to, as many people do, bring down Western civilization today, rebel against it, replace it with some other kind of ideology. And in fact, this happened in countries that were ruled by ideologies like communism and socialism. The first thing that those who wanted to create that rule was to get rid of the previous rule by getting rid of the images, the things that made present that former rule, that former system of government and now replace it with this other system called communism or socialism. Same thing has happened here. Anarchists have done what? They've torn down statues, even statues of a saint like Junipero Serra in California, a man who was so compassionate to Native Americans, to the people there. He sacrificed so much for them, and his statue has been torn down by anarchists. Other statues have been torn down or desecrated. Churches have been desecrated, and the imagery of the churches have been desecrated. Why? Because that's the first thing that an anarchist or someone who wants to replace the system of government goes after. It goes after the icons, the images. Because when we look upon those images, we are reaffirmed in that particular government or history. We're made proud. We're reminded And so anarchists don't want to have that reminder. They want to blot it out. So they blot it out by going after the images. Now, that's a backhand, kind of a negative proof of why we can and should have imagery in the church, actually everywhere in life, but certainly in the church. 
because it is that powerful, it must be real, because why else would people who are against what the images represent, why else would they go after those images with such tenacity, with such hate, which in such vile ways as they have? Let's, let's be honest. We're seeing that in our news. We have for quite some time. It doesn't seem to want to stop either. But on a more positive tone, imagery making the invisible visible is, as I mentioned earlier, the way the way to see all of light. That's the lens out of which we should see and interface with all of light. I like to call it the sacramental liturgical worldview. In other words, it's where we see God alive, God present in everything, even man-made things. You know, man, the human person, cooperates with God. We sort of co-create with God. God gave us the ability to create, to make beautiful things, to make inventions that are incredible and marvelous. That's an ability that makes us seem like God. We reflect God. So to be creative is to be like God, not equal to God, but to be like God, to take nothing and to create something out of it, something magnificent. Let's face it, everything starts with an idea, a thought in our head, which is invisible. It's real, but it's invisible. And then those thoughts start to become visible until they become full-blown inventions, an entire city, a skyscraper, a new model of a car, or an icon, a statue, something holy. Every bit of creation reflects God. Now, we're not talking about creating evil images, satanic images. However, the fact that we can create is still reminiscent of God, so we can't escape it. But we're not saying that every image reflects God. Obviously, some things are meant to actually be against God, such as I mentioned, these satanic images. But the ability to create is part of how we image God on earth. And so images are something we must do, we should do. It's part of our human nature. Human nature wants to create. Human nature wants and needs symbols. The reason why we need symbols is because there are mysteries that are too great for us to really fully comprehend or fully express, especially with words. So what we do is we create things that symbolize that. We create images. Or in the case of written word, we create, such as in the Bible, allegories. In fact, the way that the Eastern churches utilize the Bible is by what we call allegorical typology. We see in all the Old Testament figures and events a foreshadowing of the archetype Jesus Christ and also his mother. But these are foreshadowed in the Old Testament through what we call types, types of the archetype. For example, the story of Joseph, who was sold into slavery by his brothers. It's a great, great story of forgiveness. But first, of course, there was betrayal by his own beloved people, his own family. Betrayal, forgiveness, redemption. And also there's a piece in there that has to do with Joseph's purity. These are all types, obviously, of Jesus Christ. So is Moses. So are the prophets. So is Adam. Everybody and everything in the Old Testament is a foreshadowing, a type, an allegory for the coming of Christ. And along with that, his blessed mother, the Virgin Mary. So we use imagery, poetry, allegory, even in the written word. But it's all about trying to convey, trying to literally immerse ourselves in a reality that is too great for us to fully comprehend or fully articulate through words. And that's what imagery is about. Did you ever 
buy. I'm sorry, I'm sure you do. In fact, you may be doing it now, getting ready for the Christmas season already. Maybe you're making out your Christmas card list and you go and order Christmas cards. Or maybe it's a birthday. Maybe it's an anniversary or something. Why do we get cards? Why, why do we get cards for those things? It's because the card in its imagery, we look at the card, we look at the picture on there, we look at the design, we say, okay, I like that, yeah, I want that. Then we open the card, we look at what it says, you know, the greeting card for whatever occasion, and we buy it. We say, oh yeah, I'm gonna send this card to that person. Why? Why couldn't you just call them up or make up your own card? Well, because we buy a card that says what we want to say better than we can. And it does by imagery, by poetry, by the very design of the car, the text of it. So it's the same thing with icons. Icons, allegory in the written word, even music, says it better than we can. Kind of elevates the message. And that's why we paint icons. That's why we use allegory in music and poetry. Because it elevates what is in our heart. It elevates what we would like to say, but we can't say it, I was, I'll call it, worthy enough. We can't find the words, or we don't feel that no matter what we come up with, it, it quite communicates it the way we really feel. It's, it's like we're, our words aren't worthy, or they're not adequate enough for what we want to communicate. So we use allegory, symbols. You see, our faith is about sacrament and symbol. What mystery is being made present through sacrament and symbol? Imagery makes present on earth the living God, invisible realities made visible through the physical. And that is why today's Seventh Ecumenical Council is so important. Thanks for listening. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. To hear Light of the East again, visit ByzantineCatholic.com and click on the Features and Programs tab and on iTunes. Thank you for listening to Light of the East. We encourage you to tell a friend about Light of the East and to visit ByzantineCatholic.com. Light of the East is produced by ADC Media. We need EWTN Radio for the reason that Mother Angelica founded this entire enterprise. She always saw this as a spiritual growth network. It was to be an enterprise in media that reached people in all aspects of their life. She saw this as a, a holistic approach to reaching the whole person in the middle of the world and bringing them truth and life. Raymond Arroyo thinks Catholic Radio is important. So should you. Thank you for listening. Next week, we will return to the light of the East. To learn more about Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish, visit our website, byzantinecatholic.com, where you will also find an archive of all of our programs. In order to continue Light of the East with its mission of Christianity's reunion, we need your support with a donation. Any amount will be a blessing. Please make out a check to Light of the East Radio and send it to Light of the East, 14610 Will Cook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. That's Light of the East, 14610 Wilcook Road, spelled W-I-L-L-C-O-O-K Road, Homer Glen, Illinois. Or donate online on the homepage of ByzantineCatholic.com. From the Light of the East, a new dawn of unity is in sight. God bless you, go with God, and may God grant you many happy years. Oh!